Please turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll take up our reading in verse 1 through the 8th verse. You'll find this on page 382 of your pew Bible. First Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, hear now the word of the Lord. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Now we pray that You would bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of it. Would You cause Your Word to come to Your people? Would they be fed by it, strengthened and nourished by it, sustained by it, By faith, would they receive it and believe it? And would you be pleased to bless your word this evening? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage tonight begins in verse 1 with Ahab telling Jezebel all that he had done. All that Elijah had done. And so he shares with his wife everything that happened at Mount Carmel, how Elijah confronted the people for their idolatrous indecision, how Elijah challenged the Baal prophets to a contest of sacrifice, how Elijah mocked them when they failed to rouse their God, how Elijah rebuilt the altar and called the people to draw near, how Elijah prepared a sacrifice for the Lord, how Elijah prayed and fire fell from heaven. King Ahab, he omits no details from his account. He even explains to her 
how Elijah had killed the prophets with the sword. Elijah, he commanded the people to seize the prophets of Baal. Elijah said, don't let any of them escape. And Elijah, that Elijah, he he brought them down to the brook of Kishon and he slaughtered the prophets there. Ahab explained, we are told, all that Elijah had done. You'll notice Ahab's testimony, it focuses solely on Elijah's action. It makes no reference to the Lord. Elijah had done it. And so, while we might hope for repentance, we're not at all surprised to see that Jezebel, upon hearing Ahab's testimony, proceeds to threaten to kill Elijah. She sent a messenger to him saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. We have here perhaps the world's most ineffective testimony. Despite all the great things the Lord has done, Jezebel's hearing of it does nothing for her soul. She does not repent. She does not believe. She does not turn away from her idols and embrace the covenant Lord Yahweh. She intends only to murder his prophet. Even an accurate retelling of the redemptive facts is by itself insufficient to open the eyes of Jezebel. Jezebel's threat takes the form of a self-maledictory oath. She calls on the gods, presumably Baal, Astarte, and others of that pagan pantheon, to do to me also, that is to kill her, just as Elijah had killed the prophets at Kishon. She adds to this oath and more also, so as to increase the severity of her malediction. In other words, she's calling upon the gods to do to her something even worse than what Elijah himself had done to the prophets of Baal, to die perhaps in an even worse manner. And this malediction she conditions upon her oath. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them. And so she swears to slaughter Elijah just as he slaughtered the prophets of Baal, and that by this time tomorrow. You notice that the condition is marked by time. Her self-maledictory oath has an expiration date at which point it will go into effect. If she does not kill the prophet by the appointed time, then she will become liable to the judgment of her own curse. It seems Jezebel means business given she's swearing on her own grave. Why then, we might wonder, does Jezebel send her servant to warn Elijah rather than simply seizing him and killing him right where he stands? seems odd to give him heads-up notice that she intends to kill him. Well, we don't know why. Perhaps Ahab would not have allowed it, or else she perceived the public danger of taking such a bold course of action now. After all, think about the the testimony she's just heard. 
She knows knows all the people have just witnessed what Elijah did on Mount Carmel. She knows that they all have just confessed, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. She knows that at the command of Elijah, all those people had seized the Baal prophets that he might put them to death. And so perhaps she feared the people might seize and kill her if she dared to touch the Lord's anointed prophet. We don't know for sure, but these might have been reasons why she warned him about this impending death. If this is the case, then the best that she could have done was to threaten the prophet in the hopes of driving him out of town. It's a scare tactic to get rid of him. And in verse 3, Elijah does, in fact, we are told, run for his life. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, we we might infer from a surface-level reading of this that Elijah was afraid of Jezebel. I will note it does not say he was afraid of Jezebel. And there are, I think, several reasons why this inference would, in fact, be a mistake. I should note here that there is a significant textual variant. Uh, Most manuscripts, most translations will read something along the lines of, fearing he arose. Uh, But there are some which read, seeing he arose. And the reason for this is that the verbs translated as fearing and seeing in the Hebrew look and sound very similar And so it's easy to imagine how some scribes, whether intentionally to correct a perceived error or else by accident, uh, substituted one word for uh, the other. This happens occasionally in Scripture, but most of the time it doesn't really make that great of a difference. Uh, But here, I I do think it significantly affects how we understand this passage. By far the most common way of reading this is that Elijah was afraid of Jezebel and then being ashamed of his cowardice, he later asks to die. But I am convinced that this is not likely to be the original and correct sense of this passage. First, Elijah has not to this point been prone to fear. He did not fear to pronounce a curse on Ahab for breaking the covenant, which was establishing for breaking the covenant by establishing idol worship in the Lord. He didn't fear later to show himself to Ahab, even when he knew the king had diligently sought his life. He did not fear to confront all the people of Israel on Mount Carmel for their idolatrous indecision. Nor did he fear to challenge the 450 prophets of Baal. Certainly he didn't fear to mock them. He did not fear to command them to be seized. He did not fear to kill them, even though they served in the royal household. It's very hard to conceive of Elijah as suddenly now being afraid to lose his life at the hands of Queen Jezebel. Now, that being said, we do know Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He had similar uh, feelings and tendencies, and uh, he was still certainly prone to sin. And we know Elijah is not perfect. We know the Scripture often exposes the sins of otherwise godly saints. 
We know Abraham didn't tell the truth about Sarah being his sister. Moses was prone to anger. David committed adultery and murder. Solomon took unbelieving wives. And so they were all sinners. And certainly it's possible then that Elijah could have been afraid of Jezebel. But was he? Secondly, in verse, the verse next to this, the very next verse, Elijah, he'll ask the Lord that he might die. Now, if he was fleeing because he was afraid of Jezebel, and that on account of her death threat, it should seem strange to us, I think, that he then prays to die in the very next verse. Instead, we might expect him to pray to the Lord that the Lord would deliver him from death, as other saints, especially the psalmist, often did. And so I think in light of the variant reading contained in some manuscripts, and given Elijah's otherwise very courageous life of faith, and given his prayer for death in the very next verse, I'm personally convinced that Elijah was not afraid, but rather he saw. And seeing Jezebel's threat, that is, perceiving the danger to his life, and not fearing, but, but considering this, he arose and he ran for his life. And again, there's nothing here, sometimes in our our idiomatic expressions we assume things, there's nothing here in the idea of him running for his life uh, that requires us to infer fear. In fact, we we really don't actually know that Elijah ran. We might think, well, the, the, the fact that he ran versus walked suggests that he was afraid. There was a sense of urgency there, but the language itself in a literal translation could have just as well been rendered walked for his life or even went for his life. We presume based on context and and the cultural situation that he traveled on his feet because this was the most common way of getting around and there's no mention of any animal. And we presume that he traveled quickly uh, because of the immediate circumstances, but he might have just went away. The primary sense is that the prophet departed from Jezreel in consideration of his life. In other words, he, he left not because he was afraid, he left because he did not want to die at least not in Jezreel, and not at the hands of this wicked woman Jezebel. A lot of people, they're really hard on Elijah. They criticize him for fleeing. They realize he was under no obligation to stay. The, The word of the Lord certainly had not come to Elijah saying, hey, go to Jezreel and get murdered. That never happened. Uh, The Lord commanded him to uh, show himself to Ahab, and the Lord promised that then he would send rain. And that's sort of the beginning and the end of the instructions that we have, and both of those things have happened, and now the prophet is more or less without instruction. Another word has not come to him. Well, Elijah came to Beersheba, the city we're told it belongs to Judah. Elijah went from the city of Jezreel. And he left the country of Israel, and then he he crossed all the way to the far side of the southern kingdom of Judah into the territory of Simeon, and there he came to the city of Beersheba. And this is the southernmost city of the land. It's located more than a hundred miles south of Jezreel and significant in the Old Testament usage. It is usually uh, used as as a, a shorthand for the very southernmost edge of the land in terms of civilization. All that's beyond Beersheba is wilderness. You'll often see in the Scripture, from Dan to Beersheba, it's the the northernmost and the southernmost tips 
of the full kingdom. Well, if he had fled for fear of Jezebel, I don't think he would have gone so far. Uh, Jerusalem was along the way. Hebron was along the way. Any number of other cities outside of Israel, even into Judah, would have been perfectly safe for Elijah. But he went all the way to the bottom, down to Beersheba, and we need to ask why. The distance alone strongly suggests to us that Elijah is not merely fleeing from Jezreel or from Jezebel. Rather, he intended to come this way through Beersheba and then to the wilderness surrounding it. And we find his final destination actually at the very end a little bit later in the text. Well, Beersheba occupies a significant place in the geography of God's redemptive history. I think it's important for us to pay attention uh, to the geography uh, that we find here. First, Beersheba uh, is where Israel offered sacrifice to God, the God of his father Isaac. There the Lord spoke to Israel in a vision of the night, saying, I am the God of your father, Do not be afraid to go down into Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. Just thinking in terms of the context of who 1 Kings is written to, uh, an exiled captive people, how encouraging would remembering something like that be to them? That they are in a similar situation as Israel once was, going down into Egypt. Would their covenant-keeping God bring them out again? Well, second, Beersheba is where the Lord renewed the covenant with Isaac, saying, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And then when Isaac's servants dug wells and found water there, Abraham called the place Sheba. Sorry, Isaac called the place Sheba, which in Hebrew sounds like oath. And you start seeing a theme emerge, the significance of Beersheba with respect to covenanting. And we see it again. Beersheba is where Abraham disputed with Abimelech over a well of water, and there he gave the king seven lambs and swore an oath and made a covenant. These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. And therefore, the place was called Beersheba because both of them swore an oath. Again, you see the covenantal idea. Uh, Accordingly, uh, Beersheba then is where Abraham significantly first secures property rights in the promised land. And ever ever since then, it seems that the Lord has been dealing with His covenant people with respect to His covenant in this place there. And so Elijah, I think, comes to Beersheba not merely to flee out of fear from Jezebel, to get away from Jezreel, though certainly that might have been part of it. I don't deny that there's a sense in which Elijah is just getting away, but I think there's more intentionality than that. This is especially the place where the Lord has often spoken to His people. It's been a while since a word of the Lord has come to Elijah. And it seems Elijah is going to Beersheba, and on his way trying to, to, to find out what's next. Elijah leaves his servant there in the city, but he himself, we're told, went a day's journey into the wilderness. 
Given the prophet's habit of traveling by the strength of the Holy Spirit and running with supernatural speed upwards of 40 miles per hour, as we read at the end of the last narrative, we might wonder what what is a, a day's journey for Elijah? He could really be anywhere. But I think if we presume that uh, Elijah is uh, taking an ordinary day's journey uh, of perhaps 25 miles or so, then Elijah's still really in the immediate wilderness of Beersheba. The Bible talks about wilderness, and there's all sorts of different wildernesses uh, in the Bible, uh, but I think he is in the immediate vicinity, the wilderness of Beersheba. And so we should again note the historical significance of this place. This wilderness is where Hagar and Ishmael wandered and nearly died. It's interesting, actually. I don't really know what to make of it, but there are several parallels between Elijah's experience here and Hagar and Ishmael's. If you look at their narratives, each records them lying under a bush, both waiting to die, each visited by an angel of the Lord, each commanded to arise, and each providentially sustained. Again, make of that what you will. I, I, I don't know, uh, but it is an interesting parallel. I think at very least we can say that this is a place where, where the Lord has often dealt with His people, and He, being the covenant-keeping God, is always in the business of sustaining His servants. Well, Elijah came and sat down under a broom tree. If you're reading from a King James Version, you'll see it's called a juniper. Uh, but I, I don't think we... Uh, would be right to imagine this is some nice, big, tall, wide-canopied shade tree. Really, it's a bush. Fully mature, it might be between four and eight feet tall and equally wide. Now, scripture elsewhere suggests that these uh, had uh, roots that were useful for making coal. Uh, but here, obviously, Elijah, he sits under it. And so imagine the prophet sitting next to a small to medium-sized bush. Uh, Why is he doing so? Well, for the shade. It's the wilderness. There's not much vegetation. It's presumably pretty hot and arid, and so he uh, picks this place uh, to sit down and rest. And he goes on to say, the narrator says, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. It's interesting, Elijah, his life has been threatened, and now he comes to this broom tree, and he asks to die. Now, if Elijah wished to die by any means, he might have simply sought a martyr's death in Jezreel, or along the way, he might have taken his own life by some other means. But it seems Elijah isn't seeking to be a martyr. And nor is he, as many people suppose, I think, suicidal. He he does wish for death. That much is very clear. You can't deny it. But consider the means by which he seeks it. He asks for death. He, He prays for death. You see, life in the eyes of Elijah is not something to throw away needlessly nor is it his to end prematurely. I think deep down he recognizes that his life, though it is his, ultimately belongs to the Lord. 
The Scripture often speaks that way. The Lord is the, the giver and the taker of life. Actually, often reverses that. He is the, the taker and the giver of life. He's the one who's able uh, to raise the dead. But Elijah recognizes that life, properly speaking, belongs to the Lord. And so while he expresses his honest desire to die, I think he's showing his submission to the Lord by praying and asking for death. Elijah's prayer for death is prefaced with this statement, it is enough. I don't believe he's complaining. A lot of commentators uh, very negatively portray Elijah as complaining about the the hardships and the, the difficulties and the burdens of his ministry and his uh, seeming failure to, to flee as a coward from Jezebel. I don't think that's true at all. Elijah, maybe satisfaction is too strong of a word, but Elijah is expressing something of his satisfaction. The length of his days, uh, the quantity of his years, They've become sufficient, at least in his own eyes. Yes, he's borne the burdens, but he's also had the blessings of life and ministry for many years. And all he's doing is expressing his desire to be done. I'm not convinced that's such a wrong thing. Elijah addresses himself very respectfully to the covenant Lord. This is the covenant name of God, the God of Israel, before whom Elijah, we are told, stood from this Lord. The word had often come to Elijah, and in obedience to that word, Elijah has faithfully executed his office of a prophet. From Kareth to Zarephath to the top of Mount Carmel, Elijah has not failed to follow the word of the Lord. Too many people presume that he has. He says, now take away my life. You see, Elijah's petition, it expresses his desire that the Lord should act immediately, now, in the present moment, without any delay. And the action for which Elijah prays is that the Lord would take away his life. Previously, the narrator summarized Elijah's request in terms of life turning to death. But Elijah's petition makes clear that his prayer is that his life would be taken away to be with the Lord. Elijah adds an argument to his petition, for I am no better than my fathers. And again, people presume that Elijah is admitting or acknowledging in some uh, egregious failing on his part, and I, I don't think that's to be the case. There is in this uh, some implication, obviously, that he's a sinner, uh, but he's not admitting that he has some great moral failure with respect to his fearing and fleeing from Jezebel. He he compares his own goodness uh, to that of his ancestors, and he concludes that he's not better than his ancestral fathers, such that he would be worthy of an especially long life. Uh, It's important for us to realize that implicit in this argument is the prophet's belief that the Lord blesses with longevity, with longevity of life, those who are good. Now, that, that might sound shocking to us, right? But it's biblical language. It may surprise us that this belief is taught in Scripture, uh, but goodness is a descriptive word of the spiritual character of a man who's not perfect, but who fears the Lord, who trusts the Lord, who believes in the Lord, and endeavors to follow His commandments. 
The Lord himself expresses this promise of longevity and blessing in such verses as these. Consider the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Then he adds the promise. Apostles pick up this in the New Testament. This is the first commandment with a promise. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We find this same belief expressed several times in the book of Proverbs. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Proverbs 3, verse 1 and 2. And hear my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. Proverbs 4, verse 10. And the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Proverbs 10, verse 27. Now, Elijah's point, his argument, is not that he is so good and that the Lord should therefore bless him with a long life. In fact, it's the complete opposite. He admits that this is a blessing which he does not rightfully deserve. He confesses to not being any better than his fathers. Now, one difficulty in interpreting this text is we actually know very little about Elijah's genealogical background. He's a Tishbite from Tishbe, a nobody from nowhere. We have no idea of his tribe or whether he's even an Israelite in reality. But for certainly we can say, because all men are sinners, that Elijah's fathers were sinners. And if we assume he is a son of Israel, uh, then his fathers worshipped idols, wandered around in this wilderness, not unlike the one where he's at now. The Lord delivered them from Egypt. But how did they respond? They longed to return. The Lord fed these fathers with bread from heaven, but they despised his food and complained against his servant. Such were the sons of Israel. They were sinners. And if this is representative of what Elijah is thinking of when he says he's no better than his fathers, we get a sense of what he means. It's interesting. There are recorded in Scripture only a few men who pray to die. Honestly, I was quite surprised in looking for examples of this because I expected, given how miserable sin makes life, uh, that we'd find many of them. There aren't. There are very few. And the truly interesting thing is that the men who do pray to die are some of the most blameless and upright, God-fearing men in the Bible. Again, they are sinners. I'm not saying they're perfect. But they are men who greatly fear the Lord, and the Scripture is very clear about that. For example, Job lamented, Why did I not die at birth? Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to bitter in soul, who longs for death, but it comes not? Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. And then there's Moses who said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have, you not, have I not found favor in your sight? That you lay the burden of all this people on me. 
Did I conceive of all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child? I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. I think we should wonder whether Elijah might have felt the same as Job and Moses. All three of these men are noted in Scripture for their faith in God. And while none of them were perfect, each of them lived a remarkably godly life. And even so, every one of them suffered countless hardships and bore heavy burdens for long periods of time over the course of their lives. And each of them prayed for death. At the very least, one of the things we should learn about this is that living in the fear of the Lord and endeavoring to keep His commandments, living a sanctified Christian life is hardly a guarantee for a quiet, comfortable existence. It's almost the opposite, that with righteousness and godly living, being a person of faith, believing in God, often brings such trials. And what's interesting in that in each of these, the Lord did not answer their prayer positively. The Lord did not give death to them, at least not right away. Job, he goes on to live 140 years. And Moses' prayer for death comes not towards the end, but toward the beginning of the wilderness wanderings. He probably lived another 38 or so years after he prayed for death. And likewise, the Lord denies Elijah's request. And instead, he sends an angel commanding the prophet, Arise and eat. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. He arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Elijah prayed for death. And then he went to bed. He lay down and slept under a broom tree. I think it's pretty clear that he had no intentions of waking up. He wanted to take, as some people call it, the forever nap. But the Lord clearly had different plans. Behold, we read, an angel touched him. You see, the Lord, he sends an angelic messenger first to wake Elijah up and then to feed him. The angel said to him, Arise and eat. Now, the the Lord's been feeding Elijah throughout the entire narrative. I don't know if you've picked up on that theme yet. Elijah hasn't paid for a meal in years. He fed him by ravens at Kerith and by the widow and her jug and jar at Zarephath. The prophet hasn't provided for himself a meal in over three years. And wherever the Lord sent Elijah, we we read that he also providentially arranged for his food, whether by raven or by widow or by brook, as it was in the beginning. 
But on Mount Carmel, I made a point, if you remember previously, that Elijah sent the king to go and eat, to celebrate uh, the coming blessing through covenant renewal. The rains were going to come. Elijah sends the king to go and to eat and to celebrate. But what does Elijah do? He goes and he does not join the king. He goes to the top of Mount Carmel and he prays. And with that praying, he fasted. Now think about what's happened since then. He he ran before the king's chariot to Jezreel at an incredible speed to honor the king. And now this evening we've read that he's traveled more than a hundred miles to Beersheba. And you'll notice that there's not been a single mention of him eating or drinking anything since he left Zarephath. But now in the wilderness of all places, he looked and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He said, the Lord by an angel brought this prophet bread and water. I'm betting he was pretty hungry and pretty thirsty by now. Elijah ate and drank and lay down. And the laying down, again, it gives us the impression that Elijah needed more than just food and water. He needed really his rest. He's exhausted from his long journeys. And after some time, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him, waking him up again and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Uh, A little bit of rest was not enough. A little bit of food and water was not enough. Elijah needed more, and so he ate and drank and laid back again and then got woken up again by the angel. Uh, The idea is that there's there's a period of time here. We don't know how long, but the angel of the Lord let him rest a little longer. Very uh, gracious of him to do so. But we should ask, what what journey is this angel talking about? Clearly the angel of the Lord, he, he knows something that we don't know. Namely that Beersheba, even the wilderness of Beersheba, is not actually Elijah's final destination. Apparently, Elijah's headed to Horeb, and this is the first we read of it. He's been traveling all this way, making his way away from Jezreel, but where is he going? He's going to Horeb, which is called the Mount of God. And for those of you who don't recall, this is where the Lord had revealed himself first to Moses, giving him the covenant law, appearing in the burning bush. It's a a significant place in redemptive history. I think what's going on here is Elijah has been rewinding redemptive history, as it were, going backwards from the, the furthest north expanse of the kingdom all the way down to the southernmost city and then into the wilderness. And he's making his way all the way back to Horeb where it all began. And we should wonder, why is he going to Horeb? Well, in our next passage, the Lord will speak to Elijah there. And like a second Moses, Elijah, he has covenant business. He has a meeting uh, that he has to take with the Lord at Mount Horeb. Uh, But instead of receiving the covenant law like Moses did, he's going to bring charges against Israel for their apostasy, for their breaking of the covenant. And the Lord is going to commission Elijah with one last mission to anoint two kings and a new prophet who will execute judgment upon his people. That's why Elijah left Jezreel. This is where he's going. He's not a coward running in fear. 
He is a prophet of the Lord, and he will prosecute the people for their covenant faithlessness. The Lord has one more mission for Elijah. And therefore, though Elijah urgently prayed for death and had argued that he had had enough already, that he was no better than his father's, just let me die, the Lord does not give him the answer that he wanted, does he? Instead, he sends an angel to minister to him, touching him, bidding him to eat and drink, sending him in the strength of that food for 40 days to finish the work which he has been called to do. If you wonder why the, that period of time, it's, it's an abbreviated version of the wondrous, wanderness, wilderness, uh, the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel. They had 40 years. Elijah gets 40 days in which he'll make his way to Mount Horeb. Uh, we should note it doesn't take that long to get to Mount Horeb from where he is. Uh, he's not going directly there. It's going to be a lot of wandering. And the idea of wilderness wandering is that of trial. Uh, but Elijah will eventually come to Mount Horeb. But significantly, he, he needs to be fed and sustained because he's not strong enough to make this journey as he is I think there is no better application to conclude this sermon with then than what sits before us. Is not God always in the business of feeding his people in the wilderness, sustaining them by his all-sufficiency, whether it's Israel in the wilderness receiving the bread from heaven, the, the water from the rock, which is Christ, or whether it's Elijah being given this cake of bread and a little jar of water, the Lord is sustaining his people especially his servants. And is he not also sustaining us? Is that not what the Lord Jesus Christ has appointed, what is before us for our spiritual nourishment, for our growth and grace? Is not the journey, so to speak, too hard for us unless we take and participate in this meal by which he sustains us? Perhaps you're here tonight, and like the prophet Elijah, you're exhausted physically, emotionally, spiritually drained, and you've been running on empty, and you feel like you've had enough. Maybe you've even prayed as Elijah prayed, oh Lord, take away my life. I'm not here like the commentators of Elijah to criticize you. But if you are here tonight, and I think it's a safe realization that now is not yet your time to die. He's called some of you to be husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, children. He's called all of us to some kind of vocational work in a field of industry, in a home, or in the school, in the church. And if you professed faith in the Lord Jesus, then your calling is not the special calling of prophet like Elijah had, but you are called to be a Christian. You're to labor faithfully to do all your work until your race is won as a Christian. And to sustain you in this calling as a Christian, the Lord, He has appointed a meal for you. And He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the flesh, down from heaven. And I think of the Lord Jesus and His prayer 
my father, he prayed. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then a second time he prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And what was the will of the Father? That the Lord Jesus Christ would drink the cup of his own wrath. The wrath duly deserved by us for our sin. Jesus, too, prayed for death so that in him we might receive life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which comes to us in the life of Elijah, of your faithfulness in feeding your servant in so many different places and especially in the wilderness where there was nothing. How you sustained him to complete the work to which you called him. And Lord, I pray that you would likewise sustain your servants, these people, and me. That we would feast spiritually upon Christ and so be strengthened to serve him and to fear him and to follow him until the time that you should call us home. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.